Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, glad you could join the Technology, Economics, and Governance Working Group at the Hoover Institution. And Amy Zegart and I will, John Taylor, will be very welcome to have our, our guest today, Nick Clegg from Facebook. Uh, we'll be talking about global regulation, internet governance, and oversight. Uh, Nick has joined Facebook three years ago this month, I understand, which is uh, great to have him in the neighborhood. Uh, he's Vice President of Global Affairs and Communications at Facebook. Um, and before that was involved in a couple of decades, at least, in the British and European government. He was Deputy Prime Minister from 2010 to 2015. As like all of us, he's written best-selling books, of course. And uh, we are very, very happy that he's pleased to join us. And remember, we had Mike McConnell from the Facebook Oversight Board speak to us not too long ago. So I'll introduce uh, Nick, as I've just done. And uh, then Amy will handle the q and I'm sure there will be many Qs and good A's as well. So, uh, so Nick, welcome. Uh, glad you could be here. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thanks, John, and um, thanks to you and Amy for, for um, uh, inviting me, and uh, I'm delighted to be with you. So I, I think I'll sort of get the ball rolling with some sort of observations about the, 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 the topic that you've, um, that you've um, suggested today in terms of, sort of governance of uh, the internet and of big online platforms like Facebook. Um, I mean, the first thing to say, of course, is the, the, the debate around the, the governance of, of the online world is taking place at a time when a kind of pendulum, pendulum swing from tech euphoria and tech utopianism to tech pessimism uh, is, is, in, is in full swing. Um, and we've seen this very, which you often see with new and, and um, um, sort of disruptive technologies. They, 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 te they appear to follow a similar pattern of sort of almost excessive excessive hope um, uh, followed by excessive um, uh, pessimism. Uh, and that's certainly what, uh, what I think we're all witnessing now. You know, in the past, people like Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg and others could do no wrong. They walked on water. They, their technologies were, you know, were going to act like sort of magic wands for so many ills in society. Uh, and now it's almost the other extreme. Every ill in society can now apparently be ascribed to technology in one shape or form. And, if, if Mark Zuckerberg were to walk, and walk, to walk on water, I suspect he'd be accused of being, being unable to swim or something. So we, we are in this sort of extraordinary mood swing, um, a societal uh, mood swing from, from a positive to highly negative attitudes towards um, uh, technology. And there are lots of reasons for that. Some of them good, some of them understandable, some of them uh, more unreasonable, but, 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 but there it is. Um, and certainly in terms of governance and politics, it's... it's um, perhaps inevitable that a technology, most especially social media platforms like Facebook, which are synonymous with globalization, with the elimination of space, with the elimination of borders and barriers and with the elimination of, of sort of place um, in, in, in pursuit of, uh, of creating seamless and frictionless connections between people. It's perhaps no wonder that you know, we're clearly living through an era, politically at least, of sort of deglobalization, where politics in many, many places, in this country, in my country, in large parts of 
Europe, in India, and many other places, politics is, is, is becoming much more dominated by questions of belonging, of identity, of place. Um, uh, and so there is, I think, a, an inherent, uh, a natural conflict between um, the, the, in a sense, the uh, purposes and values that uh, companies like Facebook enshrine and the mood of the times, which is, which is much more um, uh, oriented around the politics of identity, belonging, and, uh, and so on. Um, and so that is now leading to a, a very concerted attempt by regulators and governments around the world to, if I, can I put it, to control that which they currently feel they do not control, which is much of what happens on the internet and much of what happens on platforms like Facebook. Um, and I think that carries very significant dangers, candidly. I think there is a very significant danger that on, on current trends, we will um, more or less balkanize and splinter and fragment and pretty well destroy much of the open internet that we have been accustomed to for a long period of time. I mean, the, the global internet, of course, is a complete, it's, it's, a, it's a fiction, it doesn't exist. There isn't a global internet. There's there's already a Chinese internet, a non-Chinese internet, and you have many jurisdictions around the world. Look at look at developments in Vietnam, Turkey, Thailand, Russia, where governments are in effect trying to sort of emulate the 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 the, the Chinese paradigm, uh, online paradigm, which is one in which the internet is in a sense sealed off from the outside world. And it's it's heavily surveilled within 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 it within its jurisdiction, and so I do think there is a very real risk that we're hurtling at greater speed than many people appreciate towards a ever more fragmented and balkanized internet. And it's not just, by the way, because of the great U.S.-Chinese standoff, but um, you know, look at the uh, currently at the failure of the European Union and the U.S. To agree a new successor agreement to something called the Privacy Shield um, uh, uh, framework, which governs governs open trade flows between the Atlantic, and you, you have to sort of ask yourself if the EU and the US are not able to agree with themselves about how to keep the internet open across the um, <laughs> across the Atlantic, how on earth are they collectively supposed to stand up against the paradigm of a much more heavily surveilled and, and introverted internet pioneered by the Chinese and others. Um, the second, I think, danger is there's a real danger as, 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 as governments and regulators, egged on, of course, by the traditional media who have perfectly good reasons, of course, to uh, uh, drag companies like Facebook over the coals, but they also have a very pronounced commercial self-interest because they feel that companies like Facebook and Google have disrupted their advertising uh, business model, which indeed they have, um, uh, and, and, and in a sense compete for online advertising dollars now with, uh, with these Silicon Valley companies. Um, so egged on by these publishers, um, governments are making ever more aggressive incursions into how legal, legal, but otherwise deemed untoward speech is treated online. And, and I, whilst that is totally understandable and in many ways legitimate, we, everybody wants to minimize the harms that can circulate through offensive or unpleasant speech. I, I do think it, it poses some pretty substantial first order questions about uh, safeguarding principles of free expression and freedom of speech. I mean, if you look at the highly politicized debate in the US, for instance, about 
misinformation. Misinformation, candidly, is often used as an alibi for political speech that people just don't like. And if you add a, a label misinformation to it, suddenly it's, some, it's somehow deemed to be um, um, you know, unacceptable. So I think there is a real tug of war going on about where you draw the line between free expression and content moderation and where you, where you uh, draw the line on, on what is considered to be legal, but nonetheless unacceptable harmful speech that should be somehow acted against by private sector companies. And, you know, just to give you a, just to give you a illustration of how current this is, the UK Parliament, where I used to serve for 12 years as a party leader and as a deputy prime minister and so on, uh, is currently uh, 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 sort of cogitating on legislation which would, in effect, apply criminal sanctions on private sector companies like Facebook to act against content which is totally legal, uh, but, deemed, but deemed in a rather opaque way to be harmful. And it's just a classic example of how, because of the, 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 sort of the pressures around at the moment, we end up moving the line on free expression much more rapidly than we might have done otherwise. And I think the, the third and, and final danger in this sort of pendulum swing is, of course, uh, that it just slows down innovation more generally and, and um, uh, on the whole I think that you know that would be a, that would be to, to the detriment of, um, of of society generally if 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 we were to somehow stand in the way of um, uh, rapid innovation and I look a final thing I'd say is um, those are the dangers but clearly regulation is must will and should happen but uh, will it happen in a coherent way in a rational way in a proportionate way and will it happen in a in a framework of coherent international governments, well, that is still, I think, very much up in the air and is um, hopefully going to be the subject of genuine American leadership. I think, you know, the, the US, it seems to me, has a huge incentive to galvanize a partnership, particularly with Europe and India, so that the three main techno-democracies work together on some basic principles about keeping data flows open, about not restricting speech unduly, about holding these private sector platforms to account, but doing so in, in keeping with the values of an open, uh, open and free internet. Um, and I do fear that if America and Europe and India don't get their act together, the future of the internet will very much be written in Beijing, not in DC, Brussels or Delhi. Well, thank you so much, Nick, uh, not only just for spending time with us, but for that high level view of what's at stake here. And I think it's, I speak for all of us when I, when I say that, um, you know, we have a, a group of very concerned and interested uh, academics and colleagues. Um, so uh, I won the rock, paper, scissors. So I get to kick off the questions with my first question, then I'll turn it over to John Taylor, and then we'll open it up to everybody else. Uh, if you have a question and want to get in the queue, uh, just click on your little raise hand icon at the bottom. And apparently the, the wizardry of Zoom is that it goes in the order in which you ask your question now. Uh, so I'll do my best to get everybody uh, in the queue. So go ahead and, and click if you want to get in the line and John and I'll kick it off. Nick, I, I want to pick up on something that you said at the start, which is every ill seems to be ascribed to technology these days, right? And there's this pendulum swing. And I think we see that. Um, and so my question has to do with access to data. So one of the critical issues, particularly for academics, 
is to actually figure out what ills should be ascribed to technology. What's the causal relationship between certain products and societal harms or societal benefits? And what we're seeing, at least from the outside looking in, is Facebook's internal research is not geared to do that. That's the response to Haugen is uh, made very clear that the Wall Street Journal ascribes sort of statistical causality to Facebook research that wasn't appropriate. So internal research isn't really doing that, but external research by academics isn't allowed to do that very well. So with Social Science One, as you know, uh, real concerns among the academic community about access to data, the missing data for misinformation research. A colleague of ours resigned in frustration from being part of this academic collaboration. So my question is, if the internal system isn't addressing it and the external collaboration with academics isn't working, what needs to be done to be able to actually make progress on understanding what harms and what benefits actually stem from Facebook's uh, products? Do we need regulation in that area as well? Yeah, I think regulation might 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 de definitely be part of the um, you know sort of the, the right sort of recipe here because the 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 um, I mean, look, the short answer is you need more internal and more external research. It needs to be good quality, answering the right questions and, and held to the right standards. Um, um, I'll come in a minute to some of the some of the obstacles to that, but. Um, but in answer to your precise question about should regulation can regulation play a part? Yeah, I think I think it could do because you know there is just a fundamental tension which we have to be honest about between um, the desirability of sharing data and the risk that the more you share data, you incur privacy risk. I mean, they're just that's just there's just a trade-off. The more you the more data is the more data is left out of the let out of the building. I mean, and don't forget, by the way, you're talking about a company which is traumatized to its core by the fact that an academic, Alexander Kogan, took data many years ago, which he then, you know, sold illegally to a bunch of spivs at Cambridge Analytica. So, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, don't, this is a, this is a company which not, not perhaps unsurprisingly is extremely anxious about making sure that data is, it finds its way into the right hands in the right way, um, uh, and in a way which is in keeping with its uh, wider legal obligations, which of course have become far more stringent. Again, entirely understandably, since uh, Cambridge Analytica, we operate under a FTC order, which is extremely exacting and came with a $5 billion um, uh, fee attached to it. So, so I think I think regulation could hope, uh, could help in setting down in, in, in law um, uh, you know, what, what are the proportionate risks that the private sector sh should should and is able to take under law to 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 share data in a, in a more a fulsome way than than is currently the case? I, I don't think, though, just because social science one, you know, had had some bumps and scrapes attached to it. I don't think we should sort of overdo the kind of picture of doom and gloom. I mean, we have a thousand PhDs working in, 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 in Facebook. Um, uh, you know, we, we publish, uh, we have, you know, folk in Facebook who publish peer reviewed and, 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 and scientific papers, which are subject to, you know, academic conferences all the time. I think 400 during this, the course of this year alone. I'm very excited by the uh, US 2020 election, which I think is probably the most ambitious external 
research program of its kind with 17 academics uh, looking uh, at data sets which have been provided um, very, very in great volume to them in order to examine the um, use of social media by voters in the run up to the US 2020 election. Uh, but, but of course, this is a journey. I mean, this is a, this is a journey. We're all trying to feel our way here. Um, but but the, the, the destination clearly needs and should be more external research um, done in a way which is credible, which is privacy protective. Uh, you know, you're always going to have you're always going to have some collisions on the way. We, we are at the moment, as you know, in a bit of a standoff with researchers in in NYU who you know who are scraping data again very explicitly against our terms of service. I mean, we you know with the idea that Facebook can simply just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's okay, you can just carry on scraping data, even though it's clearly against our terms of service. It, it, you know, the, I think that's I think that's a bit unrealistic as well. So, you know, I, th I think we're all conscious in the company. And by the way, one of the things that I admire about um, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, in, the, in this situation right now, is I think many other CEOs in a company which is under fire as much as we are, because of often woefully mischaracterized internal, it's not even internal research, this is often just internal discussion papers produced, often almost deliberately and provocatively phrased in order to furnish and inform internal debate. And the company is being sort of hung, drawn, and courted for this. Many other CEOs would simply say, well, let's just not ask ourselves these questions. Let's just not do this research. Let's just stop. Um, he, he's not doing that. We're not doing that. Uh, we, we totally accept that because of the societal reach of Facebook, there is, there is a legitimate interest in external researchers trying to explore what those societal effects are, both positive and negative. Um, and that can only happen through a more mature partnership with external Researchers. So I think, look, I think the, the destination is clear. I think there will be, I think there will be, you know, there will be, you know, there'll be ups and downs along this because it's not a straightforward, it's not a straightforward as some people imply. Um, but our intention is clear. I do think we actually do a considerable more amount of research than people sometimes suggest. We need to do more and regulation would help. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, Nate personally has, 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 has tabled a, uh, some legislation, which, uh, in fact, I was discussing it with him just a, a few days ago, um, which is, you know, which is a, a really, a really thoughtful approach. It's, it's not one actually which we, we, we don't like all the details of it, but I mean, you know, Facebook's not going to write the legislation. So I think it's great that Nate and others are talking to folk on, on the Hill to see whether this legislation could finally be passed. Well, thanks for that. I'm going to turn it over to John and then we'll open it up to, to the group. John. Yeah, I just have uh, one quick question. First of all, thanks for giving a more international look. We frequently don't think, I, I wrote down the global internet does not exist already. It's quite striking a statement. It's a Chinese internet, et cetera. Uh, in that regard, we're looking at uh, possible legislation you just mentioned in the US and modifying section 230, for example. Uh, is, is that a way out for the U.S. to take the lead in getting the right legislation? And is, is modification of 230 the way to do it? So, so just on the international, I mean, first thing to remember is um, more than 90% of Facebook users are outside the United States. Right. So, you know, the, the, Facebook is a, in terms of where the people who use our products are located. It, um, the US, whilst it is, uh, of course, a US company based 
in California, rooted in US values, um, and derives a lot of revenue in the US. Actually, in terms of our our users, we 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 um, we have to sort of consider um, legislation in India, Europe, and elsewhere, and, and do so um, on a par, if not more so, even than, than legislative initiatives in DC. Much though, even though ninety percent of our users might be outside, I should think ninety nine percent of the debate tends to be <laughs> generated in the US about social media. But um, um, and as you know, because of this sort of just because of the kind of political uh, stasis in, in, in DC and the inability of the parties to agree much on a bipartisan level, it, it is true that the US has long ceded regulatory, not commercial, but regulatory leadership to others, notably the European Union. So you've got this very odd uh, role reversal where the EU is inferior commercially and technologically to the US um, um, uh, but the US is inferior to the EU in terms of you know, regulatory le le leadership. Um, it's, it's an odd decoupling of those two, those two things. Um, and I think that will continue for some time. The EU you know, obviously has taken the lead with the GDPR some, uh, some years ago. The, the US still somewhat remarkably doesn't even have you know, countrywide privacy legislation. And the, and the EU is already moving on to the next generation of legislation. It's called the Digital Markets Act, Act and the Digital Services Act, which is being, which will be finalised in the coming months. Um, uh, uh, so, so I, you know, I, I do hope. Uh, and by the way, I think it's one of the reasons. I may be wrong, but certainly with my old political hat on, um, I think it's one of the reasons why so much of the debate in the US is about antitrust because it's the one bit of the system that can still work. It's, one, it's the one bit where levers can still be pulled. Um, because legislative leaders can't be pulled, you, you're almost, you almost have to sort of default if you want to do something about big tech to say, well, that, then, then the solution must be to break them up because at least you know, maybe, that, maybe, maybe the FTC can do that. And that's why so much of the political energy goes into antitrust debate here, whereas in the EU, for instance, yeah, there is some antitrust debate, but it's much more about how data is shared, held, monetized, and so on, which in a sense, I actually think is the more appropriate regulatory question. On Section 230, I mean, Section 230 clearly needs to be updated. It's 25 years old. It's been around for a quarter of a century. The world has changed since then. Question is how. Um, the way we think about it is that the, the, the thing you want to avoid is, is governments and legisl legislatures trying to write sort of line by line what is and what is not acceptable content online. I mean, that would have such a chilling effect on, the, on, on, on free expression online. But what, what seems to us perhaps more um, appropriate would be to say to, you know, big platforms like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, so on and so forth, TikTok, to say, look, you have, you must under law, under section 230, you must, um, you will only be granted the immunity from the liability that you, that you the, 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 the immunity from liability for the content that flows on your platforms. If you can show us or show a digital regulator, which might need to be established for this purpose, um, that you have coherent rules in place about uh, the, the you know the content rules that, that govern your platform and that you have the appropriate 
human and technological systems in place to administer those rules. And if you fail to either develop those rules or apply them fairly and evenly, then that immunity from content liability will be withdrawn. In other words, you make the Section 230 privilege, if I can put it like that, and it is, of course, a privilege, um, contingent on showing that you have certain systems in place such that you know, society is comforted that the platform's being run um, responsibly. Uh, that seems to us, at least, to be a, a sensible system-wide approach and avoids the pitfalls of having what is a highly politicized argument about what is or what is not desirable you know, line by line, uh, you know, content, which 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 you're never going to get political consensus on in this country in any event. So I see a, a surprisingly reticent group today. So I'll just say, so if you want to raise your hand, raise your hand um, on uh, online. Um, I see there's one. Let me see if I can find out who it is. Marcos, Marcos. go ahead, Marcos. Yes, hi. Thank you uh, so much for being with us. And thank you, Amy and John. You know, I, I want to laud the organization for doing the oversight board. And I think that that's a really great first level uh, engagement from a democratic perspective of how do you get members of this non-territorial largest global community to engage by actually having some uh, members who are not of the organization, but who have an effect in the organization and on the organization. And so my question really is, are there plans to develop new and other forms? I, I, the way I think about the Oversight Board is more like a House of Lords or maybe a Supreme Court. Are there, are there thoughts about how do you bring in a House of Commons from members who are within this community who can also do internal engagement, a, a judiciary of some sort that also allows for, for these communities, whether they be in the United States or elsewhere, to actually actively participate in the governance of the institution of community standards, of policing, and any number of other issues that occur in organic communities that uh, tend, trend towards democracy. And uh, so I'm just curious as to how you think about that and, and, and how you feel, secondarily, the Oversight Board is working. I, I, think, the, I think the Oversight Board um... Uh, is doing a remarkably, you know, good job, and I, I'm very glad to hear that you you had a session with Mike McConnell, um, you know, your, your your colleague before, and he and the three co-chairs, I think, have done a remarkable job in corralling a very diverse, highly opinionated group of folk from all sorts of walks of life around the, around the world to adjudicate on these you know painfully difficult edge cases about whether some content should have been removed or not, and they've been um, you know, true to their word, fearless, independent, exacting, critical of Facebook, which is exactly what you would hope. Um, and um, my long-term hope, but but um, I stress the words long-term, would be that if, if the Oversight Board proves to be durable and credible, I mean, obviously, of course, it, it attracts the, 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 the sort of healthy amount of um, snark and cynicism from the kind of numerous um, almost sort of professional critics of Silicon Valley and, and Facebook who, who who will denigrate anything associated with the company. But I think, you know, if, if, it, if it does establish over time serious credibility with uh, reasonable observers, uh, my great hope would be that in the long run, you could have a body like that, which actually could embrace more than 
Facebook, but also some of the other big content platforms, you know, like Twitter, like YouTube, and so on. Um, the, 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 the more we can develop these norms, these governance norms in an industry-wide, on an industry-wide basis, rather than a company-wide basis, the better. Um, now, that's difficult because, of course, these companies are rivals, but also it's difficult reputationally. I mean, I don't want to speak for my counterparts in, in Twitter, YouTube, and so on, but, you know, they understandably, of course, will be fairly wary of all the kind of endless uh, oxygenated controversy that swells around swells around Facebook at the moment, and they want to keep, they want to keep some sort of you know safe distance from that. I, I understand all of that, but in the long run, the long run, these if these governance changes are not going to be imposed by lawmakers, and they're going to be generated from or partly generated from within the industry. Then they also need to be industry wide. And by the way, we have done some industry wide institution building, which has been highly successful. So, for instance, after the Christchurch atrocity uh, the year before last, I got together with Brad Smith in Microsoft, with uh, Kent Walker in Google, with uh, Vijay Agada in, in, in Twitter, and we worked particularly with President Macron in, in, in France and um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. And we established this new industry-wide body called the Global Internet for Counterterrorism, which is now a highly sophisticated industry-wide body that, that, that develops industry-wide responses to terrorist activity. And I don't see why, in the long run, you can't do something like that on child safety, something like that on elections. I mean, elections is a great example. Um, much though the fact that I'm interested in elections because I spent 20 years of my life in politics, I'm now conscious of the fact that I'm working for an engineering firm. You know, what on earth is an engineering firm doing trying to come up with rules about how elections take place on our platform? It shouldn't be left to Facebook to decide what is or what is not a political ad or what who is or isn't a candidate or what it, what constitutes free political speech or not. It's just and 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 we're you know we're never going to satisfy everybody, particularly in the US, given the polarized nature of the debate. That that seems to me to be a classic area which is ripe for external governance. Um, on your other issue, Marcus, which is a slightly subtly different one, which is, could you go even further and sort of create almost sort of user democracy so that users are more involved in, 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 in expressing views, binding or otherwise, on whether the rules of the road are correct or not? We, we have done quite a lot of internal research on this. It's, of course, fearfully difficult to work out how on earth you should, how on earth can you distill in a somehow a sort of representative democratic way the totally disparate views of three billion people around the world inhabiting completely different sort of cultural and other normative contexts? Um, we have done some work on it, but, it, but, but it, um, we haven't as yet found a perfect way of trying to do that in a way that just doesn't look sort of too gimmicky. So, you know, we... We've looked, for instance, at the idea of citizens' panels. Could you get panels of, you know, randomly selected people to, 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 to pronounce as Facebook users on a rule change? But even that is never going to be representative of what, of what you know, three billion individuals around the world feel. So I think the sheer scale of Facebook has somewhat sort of... Um, not, not overshadowed, that's putting it too strongly, but is, you know, is a huge complicating factor on how you can make something representative to create the demos that you refer to on, on, in a way that isn't just seen to be self-selecting. 
So I know, Marcus, you and Nick know each other, so you didn't have to say who you were, but for the benefit of the group, um, if you could just say a little bit about who you are and sort of what you study so that Nick has understands the context of your question, I'm sure that would be helpful. Next in the queue, I have Jackie Schneider. Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Jackie Schneider. I'm a Hoover Fellow here. I study emerging technology and conflict, so I do a lot of work on uh, cybersecurity, um, artificial intelligence, usually when it relates to people going to war with one another. Um, so I've done some work for the DOD on the various cyber issues. Um, so I want to ask you kind of with the lens of the last two years, because I've noticed some big changes. Um, so prior to the pandemic, prior to all this internal unrest, um, I saw that there was conversations that were kind of happening on the edges about misinformation and disinformation, you know, these kind of um, apex, you know, discussing elections. Um, but it seemed like there was a bit of a reticence to want the US government to regulate. But what I've seen in the last two years is just extraordinary experimentation on the part of each one of the different social media um, firms about internally regulating, which is leading to like a bit of almost like a, a competition <laughs> in terms of like what is effective kind of internal measures that you take to, to look at speech on your platform. So I'm interested in two questions. One is I'd like to hear kind of from your point of view what is working and what isn't for Facebook? Because, you know, as a user, I can tell that you guys are trying a lot of things um, to try and, and regulate internally speech. So I'm interested in what you think is working and what's not. And the second is, um, since I do think that this actually turns into a bit of a, a competition about kind of which firms can, can regulate or moderate the conversation without losing customers. Um, I'm interested in kind of whether the last few years have changed or, or affected the appetite for more government regulation kind of across social media platforms. So on, on the latter point, Jackie, um, um, I, I think it's a, I think it's both a question of choice and a question of necessity question of choice uh, in terms of attitudes towards regulation. It, it just, uh, I think at a very, without sort of sounding pious about this, at a very sort of fundamental level, it's just not sustainable for a private sector company to make so many adjudications which are of such profound ethical, societal and political significance. It, you know, no one elected Mark Zuckerberg. It just, you just don't have the legitimacy to do this. Uh, and so I, I just think almost regardless of one's views about where the line should be drawn, I think there's a very sort of first order acceptance and realization. Um, and I'm not, I'm not certainly not claiming that um, this, this, this is all my doing, but I think, you know, part of having people like me from politics or refugees from politics working in the private sector is precisely to try and bridge the gap between the world of politics and the world of tech. And part of that is, uh, and that is something that I, yes, I have been very vocal on since I arrived, but 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 I was pushing an open door because I think Mark Zuckerberg had got to that conclusion himself in any event, which is it's just not sustainable for a private sector company to be asked to 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 make these these finely balanced judgments, which, which are themselves the very heart of what open democratic 
political competition is about. I mean, you know, the, the very the very debate around speech is a highly political and cultural debate which cannot be adjudicated or settled on by by private companies. So that's the first that's choice, and then it's just necessity in the sense that, that you know. You always have this time lag between new technologies and societal norms which frame those technologies. You know, it took years before there were coherent laws to oblige car manufacturers to install, you know, brakes and seat belts. And we're going through the same process here. Facebook is only 16 years old, as I often say to people. Roger Federer became number one in men's tennis. I think the day or the week before Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook. So the, the Federer era is longer than the Zuckerberg era. I mean, it just, just illustrates how young these technologies are and the, the explosive growth in the last decade and a half. And it's no wonder that we're now slightly playing catch up and almost retrofitting societal norms through regulation and other norms um, and other ways uh, to, to, you know, to this um, sort of explosive uh, technology. Um, so I, th I think the, the, the attitude has changed, uh, um, but I think, as I say, it's out of choice and necessity. What do I think is working and what's not working? Um, I think what's working is, I, I believe, but I, I may be wrong, I believe that Facebook is about as sophisticated as almost any entity on the surface of the planet now in trying to understand at scale what happens online, to try and promulgate rules in a transparent way. We have these community standards, we publish them, we, 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 we iterate on them every two weeks. We do that in co cooperation with experts and academics around the, around the world. We publish data on how we enforce them. We're now gonna subject that data for the first time. No other Silicon Valley companies doing that to third-party audit. I think EY is gonna do that sort of independent audit so that people don't feel that we're judge and jury of our own performance. What is not working is that um, there's just a highly, highly fragmented and increasingly polarized view about what is and what is not acceptable speech. And of course, it's particularly pronounced here in the US where one person's misinformation is another person's right to speak and where you have half the country basically thinking that companies like Facebook censor their political views and the other half thinking that, that, um, uh, you know, that we're not taking down enough harmful content. And, uh, uh, but but it's not just that. I mean, you know, when I speak to ministers in and the media in in Scandinavia, for instance, they're outraged that we have this prurient, what they consider to be prurient North American attitude towards nudity, and they won't allow their holiday snaps, you know, um, um, uh, with 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 everything, you know, uh, left to no imagination, uh, being posted on their Facebook. Then why are you taking that down? Why are you such prudish sort of, you know, you have the American cultural taste has a much higher tolerance for violence than other jurists, you know, other, other cultures do. You, so you, so you're, we're, we're being pushed and pulled through, you know, but between very different and competing cultural norms, in addition to a highly and increasingly polarized debate about the very essence of speech in our home market. And that's not working because we can't settle that. We literally cannot say, you know, we cannot, we're caught in the middle. Um, and so you've got, as you've seen, you've got the kind of the coastal elites and the kind of particularly the kind of progressive media literally flaying Facebook every day for not taking down enough content. And yesterday, Donald Trump on television saying he thinks that Mark Zuckerberg has acted illegally to provide support in the last election. And he holds Mark Zuckerberg personally responsible for him losing the last election. I mean, you, you can't make it up.
Um, not only can't you make it up, there's no way we can bridge it, um, which is why, which is why the more if the politicians could get their act together and try and find some agreement across the aisle, it would certainly help, I think, society at large, and it would certainly help Facebook itself as well. So, Nick, I'm mindful of your time. Um, Bob Hall has his question, has his hand up, so I'll let him ask the last question, and then you can give, uh, a, 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 if you if you need to, a short answer, um, and then we'll we'll end it from there. Go ahead, Bob. Okay, I'm I'm the seniorest of senior fellows in economics at Hoover, and you know, quite attentive, partly through family connections uh, to what's happening at Facebook, but not a writer on this subject. Um, it seems to me that. Facebook's founding principles are, are, were wrong uh, and mistaken, and uh, that for its own interests, uh, Facebook ought to take the same attitude that we do at home about who's invited to our dining room table, uh, and that Facebook should, should assert an absolute right to exclude anything and not even listen to people who say, wait a minute, we have some kind of a God-given right to, to post material on Facebook. It's just a huge mistake in that. And you know, if you look at, the, at what many things that Zuckerberg has said until recently about uh, wanting to be very open and open to people that he disagreed with, that's just a mistake. Um, and, and Facebook ought to stand that you have to be part of the community of, of civilized, people at a minimum uh, in order to have a presence on Facebook. Um, and, and this would separate, it seems to me, it solve a lot of the problems that Nick's been talking about um, uh, here, uh, but obviously it would, be, it would be a huge change. I think it would be a change for the good. Um, the, idea that, the idea that there's some kind of a bright line of something called decency or whatever, uh, I, I think is just not right. Uh, and, and, and rather than try to explain and have this outside panel and all this, uh, it just should be that, that Facebook is a community of decent people and, and we get to decide what's decent, uh, just like we all have a right to decide who's at our dining room tables. Yes, um, well, respectfully, I, yes, I, I, um, I couldn't disagree more with that. Um, who would adjudicate on what is decent? Who would adjudicate on what is civilized? Who decide? You know that that seems to me to be that would seem to me at least to be arrogating a power to a private sector company, which sure. would be even more even more egregious than the power that Facebook is deemed to have. But that does not mean, Bob. Of course, it doesn't mean that Facebook. It's not a free for all. I mean, I, you know, very very clear. We boot hundreds, thousands. I don't know. For all I know, since the beginning of uh, Facebook, maybe millions of people off the platform for breaking our rules. So we have a version of your civilized dining room. They are called the community standards and they say, you can't incite hatred, you can't incite violence, you can't um, display nudity, you can't elect, act illegally, you can't undermine elections. And the company excludes and polices that bright line, not perfectly, of course not, but it does so on a vast scale. So, for instance, you know, we disable billions of fake accounts, literally billions every every uh, every every year on a huge scale. But but my but what's that what that tries to do is it tries to do so 
It tries to invite people, if you like, to the Facebook dining and table, to use your analogy, based on not wholly, but relatively objective assessments, for instance, of harm. So you can't go on Facebook and use Facebook in a way which leads to real world harm. You will then be excluded from it. Your content will be excluded and your, your account will be shut down. But I think the moment you topple into what are extraordinarily subjective concepts of decency or what is civilized or what's not civilized, I mean, can you imagine in the United States trying to come to a, a consensual agreement between right and left nowadays about what is decent and what is civilized? No, no. You, you, you can't come to it. And so basically you're asking a private sector company to pick a side in the US now, either pick the Republicans or pick the Democrats. And I think very sensibly, Facebook has said, no, it's not a political entity. It's not going to pick a side. Uh, those democratic tensions need to be resolved democratically, not by a private sector company picking a side. That's the view anyway. And it's a view that I think is not unreasonable. We unfortunately have come to the end of our time. I think we can all agree on one thing, which is Nick Clegg has one of the toughest jobs in the world. Uh, we thank you for spending your time with us today and answering the questions. And, and thanks to all my colleagues for coming today. Nick, thanks so much. No, thank, thank you. Me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>